Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out our website. We're a church that's simply about locking arms with our community to help bring restoration to individuals and neighborhoods all over the city of Austin. We're also a church that's founded on God's grace, and that means that no matter who you are or what you've done, this is a place where you can feel accepted and a place where you can belong. If you come to Fulmore Middle School for one of our Sunday gatherings, you can expect to find a welcoming and open environment. You can also expect to find a place for your kids to learn about Jesus and have fun in a safe place. We would love for you to come on a Sunday morning to Fulmore or learn more about us on our website. If you'd like to get more information or have any questions, you can also email us at info at restoreaustin.org. Either way, we'd love to see you soon. things as you walk on stage you're like okay awesome woman of God no pressure no pressure there (laughs) I'm so glad to be here I love Restore Austin I was here about a year ago with you guys and it's so awesome to see so many new faces here and to see what God is doing at Restore so I go back a little ways with Zach I knew him back when he was at Bent Tree in Carrollton that's what's called a past one of our pastoral launching pad pastors right before he was launched into Restore. And I go way, way back with Matt Gonzalez and Emily Gonzalez, and I will not share with you all the stories I know about him, unless you find me afterwards, and then maybe I'll tell you one or two. I got a lot of them. (laughs) So it's truly my pleasure to be with you guys today. My name is Amy Cedrone. I am a pastor up in uh, Carrollton at Bent Tree in Carrollton. And uh, I've been doing that for about a year and a half, and previously I was on staff in the missions department. So if you cut me, I bleed missions. But uh, right now I'm the pastor for young adults and for women, and so it's a little bit different vibe for me, but I love it. Guys, you're safe. Young adults include men, so you're not just getting a women's message. Um, but I, when, when Zach told me that Acts 5 was where we would be today, I was excited. Because this passage, we're actually going to look at 12 through the, verse 12 through the rest of the chapter today. But it's an extraordinary section of scripture. And if, you really, if we really dive into it, I really believe you're going to see what I'm talking about. So we're going to cover a lot of verses today. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. So if you want to pull that up on your phones, if you have that, uh, you can follow along with me. But I'm encouraging you guys not to drift away from the scripture that we're going to be reading today. Because I really and truly believe that God has a word for all of us that are in this room today. So stay plugged in with me. In this section of scripture, you're going to see kind of a dichotomy between two events. You're going to see the apostles in prison at the beginning of our story, and you're going to see them in, in prison or towards the end. And two different uh, outcomes of a similar event. And I, I, I was thinking about that um, in relation to my own life, those instances where 
you're, something happens and you are certain that it's going to end a certain way and it doesn't. Anybody feel me on that? You ever had that? I'll, I'll give you an example. It was several years ago and my husband and I were sleeping. Actually, he wasn't. He walked back into the room about 2.30 in the morning and he said, don't freak out. There's somebody trying to get in our house. So now when anybody says don't freak out, I freak out. So he, he comes in, he's like, as soon as he said it, we hear the doorknob, the front door. Someone is literally trying to come into our front door. And so he grabs the phone, he calls 911, and meanwhile, I'm thinking I'm going to save our children because they are asleep upstairs. It has a good ending, okay, guys? Let me just preface this. <laughs> it has a good ending. But it was so frightening in the moment, right? And I had had this plan because all along, I had this fear of somebody breaking into my house and killing our whole family. Please tell me I am not the only one with the fear of somebody breaking in your house, right? Can I see a show of hands, right? It is a scary thing. It's a scary thing. And so I'm hearing somebody trying to get in. I had already enacted how I would save my boys. At the time, they were small, and they both lived upstairs. Their, their rooms were up, They didn't live upstairs. They lived in our whole house. But their rooms were upstairs. And to get from our bedroom, we had to cross in front of the front door, which was clear glass, and the side panels also clear glass. If you have a fear of somebody breaking in, don't do clear glass. It's just a suggestion, right? So I'm thinking, I've got to run past the clear glass front door, up the stairs, and then what I was going to do is I was going to collect my oldest son first and then go across the hallway to my youngest child's room because he had a doorway to the attic in his room and then all three of us would go into the attic, ride that garage door or attic door, attic ladder. Anybody have the attic ladder that comes out of your garage? We were gonna ride that down. Don't know how that was gonna happen, but that was the plan. We were gonna ride that down into the garage and out we would go to safety. Tony, my husband, would fend for himself. But that was the plan, okay? So I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna get up the courage, I'm gonna do this, and to look at the front door from where our bedroom was, we had to kind of peer around a doorway. And as soon as I did that, I was gonna see if the coast was clear. When I did that, I saw a man's face in my front door. And as soon as he saw me, he really tries coming in. This guy must be a psycho, right? If he sees me, I didn't scare him off, he wants in. Now, things were really scary. I jumped back to try to collect my breath. My husband's on the phone with 911. He goes and grabs our shotgun, which had nothing in it. It was a, would have been a club, but he got it. He was shaking at it. Don't come in, I have a gun. And he's on the phone with 911 the whole time. I'm thinking, okay, whew, I'm going to run past the front door in a zigzag pattern down the hall to the stairs because if I'm zigzagging, maybe if they shoot, they'll miss me. That was my plan. And so I'm getting, I'm getting this up, uh, my, my nerves up, and I hear Tony trying to give a description of this man to the 911 operator. Now, mind you, Tony and I are both blind as a bat, and when you wake us out of a dead sleep, we have about a half a wit between the two of us, about half a wit. And so I'm hearing him as I'm trying to gain my composure to zigzag and ride the, elevator, ride the thing down and all that stuff. And I hear him say, it's an older man, he's got gray hair, he has a plant, and he's trying to get into our front door. And I'm thinking, he has a plant. 
That's a weird thing to say. I don't think Tony really knew what he was saying, but I, I looked out, and sure enough, this person had taken our front door wreath, I'm not, I'm not even kidding, taken our front door wreath off of our front door and put it around his neck and was trying to get in. Now things start computing that this is not what I had been replaying in my mind of a breaking and entering. And I realized that this man, once I grabbed my glasses, was actually an older woman. Turns out she had wandered across the street. It was the first uh, 32 degrees night, first freezing night that we had had. And she was just in a little nightgown and a pair of socks. And apparently she had taken the wreath off of our door to warm herself. And she was trying to get in. And I said, Tony, Tony, it's not a man trying to break in. It's a little old woman. Now, she looked like a man, guys. I mean, she really did. Her short hair, it was okay. But, she, but I said, honey, this is, a, this is a little old lady trying to get in. Let's, let's let her in. And he said in his most compassionate tone, no way she could be bait for somebody waiting in the shrubs. And I said, we're going to die a fool then because she's freezing. So long story short, um, we tried to get her in. She was, by the time we had gotten out there, she was pretty much frozen in place. And we yanked all the sheets off our bed and we threw them around her and the police came and uh, ushered her home. She was a lovely older woman, 90 years old, and uh, apparently she was living a few doors down across the street with her daughter anticipating surgery the next day and the medication that she had taken to prepare for the surgery had caused a psychosis temporarily. She was fine and embarrassed the next day. So that event happy ending, right? But that event went completely different than I expected it to. But I began to think to myself, what if it had been the worst case scenario? Because after that moment where we had been so scared, I hadn't ever felt a fear quite like that before. We were praying to God, please let this person go away. And he answered it in a different way. And that feeling of relief washed over us. But what would have happened if his answer was no? And it had been a burglar. And he had entered our home. Would God still be sovereign? Would he still be worthy of our praise? Would he still be worthy of our worship? Our section today of scripture answers that. Let's dive in together. Turn with me to Acts 5, verse 12. Just kidding. Let's start at verse 11 <laughs> for a preface. Last week, I think Zach spoke on the previous section and talked about Ananias and Sapphira, right? And how, right, didn't turn out so well for them. Remember, if you don't, read up a few verses. But look at that, chat, look at that uh, verse 11. It says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So the setting for our section today is one of a scared church. They were fearful. That word church right there is actually the first time that church is used in the book of Acts. Just a little side note. But this is a church that is... Now they're, they're waking, waking up to the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit. And they had just gone through this together. And so it's interesting that that's the setting. And then look what God does in the hearts of the apostles. He doesn't cause them to back away. He turns up the heat 
Listen to this, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all of the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Push pause. So Solomon's colonnade was actually part of the temple grounds. It was actually the, uh, the, if you look at the east side portico of the temple, it actually was built on what was thought to be Solomon's temple, what used to be Solomon's temple. It was larger. It was one where more people could gather. So instead of just going into the temple courts or into the other side where it's a smaller gathering could occur, this was actually kind of a larger amphitheater type place. There would have been large columns, a larger stage. So they actually went to that place to begin to preach the gospel to this scared little church. And that's why I said no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Even though they were fear, fearful, people ventured out to hear. And more and more people were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Now, no, it's not Peter's. We don't know that Peter's shadow actually um, saved anybody. We know that that's what they were doing. And this was actually part of a, a mystical ritual that people believed that shadows had power. They would keep people away from the shadows of evil men and they would bring them into the shadows of people that they thought were righteous. And so they were bringing their sick even into Peter's shadow. So even though it was a, a false thought process, there was a great faith exhibited by people that would just, if we could just get him close enough, just like when people reached out to touch Jesus' cloak in order to be healed by him, his cloak wasn't magical. The Messiah was powerful. The Messiah here, the Messiah that they were preaching was powerful. The Holy Spirit in the apostles were power, was powerful. Verse 16. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. Now, what's interesting is that we're, we're realizing now the word is getting out outside of Jerusalem. This is a big deal. No longer was it being contained within Jerusalem. It had escaped. And so now we see the Sadducees and the Pharisees beginning to come together to tackle this problem. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were... Uh, were the two parts of the ruling class of Jerusalem, or the ruling, the rulers of Jerusalem. And you could kind of think of it like the Democrats and Republicans. They had different thought processes about how they should tackle the events of the day. For example, the Sadducees were more interested in politics. They were more interested in the goings-on of government. Sadducees weren't typically uh, thought to believe in the afterlife. They certainly didn't believe in demons or angels. There's an old Sunday school saying that says, how you can remember that is, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in heaven. So the Sadducees, um, they were more interested in the goings-ons of the day. And then the Pharisees were more interested in social, uh, social things, and they were uh, more about the people. So they were very keen on what was going on in the hearts and the conversations of the people. 
And so, you know, just like, what would be something that could bring Democrats and Republicans together? It would have to be a pretty big stinking deal right now, right? Same thing here. So when you see these two um, groups coming together to go against the apostles, which we're about to read about, your ears should per perk up. Ears should perk up. Verse 17. Then the high priest, who would be a Sadducee, and all of his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Just a note, whenever politicians get jealous, it's a bad deal. This is, that was free, that's on the side. Okay, so verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So the apostles are now in jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Okay, I think this is hilarious, right? For the Sadducees who put them in the jail, who didn't believe in angels, for God to say, hmm, how am I going to get them out? Let's see, maybe an angel. That would be awesome. I just, I think the Lord's hilarious sometimes. Verse 20. Go, stand in the temple, the angel said, and tell the people about this new life. Where did the angel tell them to go? Back to the temple, where they had just been preaching. Go back to the temple. Verse 21. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. The Sanhedrin was kind of like our uh, Congress. It had both parties present. So the Sanhedrin was about 70 people, actually more Pharisees, or actually more Sadducees than Pharisees, but at this point in time, the Pharisees actually had a little more clout because they understood better what was going on with the people. So they called the Sanhedrin together to say, what are we going to do about this? But on arriving, this is verse 22, but on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what, might, what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went to his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. They were fearful that the people that were listening to the apostles' teaching would stone them. Who were they afraid of? The Sanhedrin. Who were they afraid of? Were they afraid of God or were they afraid of man? They were afraid of men. When the angel tells the apostles, go back from where you came, back from what got your butts in prison. Did I just say butts? I misspoke. Back from where you came from. What bravery must they must have felt? They must have experienced. Is God telling you to do something brave? When you pray at night, do you sense something in your spirit that's telling you, go do that, I want you to do that. What is that? It might be that thing that when you hear about it or read about it, it brings tears to your eyes. It might be that thing. It might be that thing that would cause you to lose your job. 
it certainly might be that thing that would cause you to lose your reputation. But if God is asking you to do it, what's holding you back? Is it the fear of man or the fear of God? Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made, a, made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. They couldn't even say the name of Jesus. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. <clears throat> Talking about Jesus. You're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. If you were to flip back through the Gospels and land in Matthew, you would find these are the same people that said, when Jesus was standing up and Pontius Pilate said, what should we do with this man? They said, crucify him. Let his blood be on our hands. Same people. And yet they're saying, you are trying to make it so that we are guilty of this man's blood. Look what Peter said. He and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. You told us to not preach again, but we had an angel of the Lord tell us to get ourselves back out there. And we're going to obey him. Verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel, bring you to repentance and forgive their, their sins. Excuse me. We are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Right in this beautiful passage, which certainly felt like condemnation to those that were hearing it, is the gospel message. He said, you are guilty of this man's death. You ordered his crucifixion. You're guilty. And I think if you pressed Peter and the apostles further, they would have said, so are we. I denied him three times the night that he was arrested. We're guilty too. But you're certainly guilty of this man's death. The one that you hung on a tree on the cross. Then look what he says. Go back up. Verse 31. God exalted him. That literally means raised him up to his own right hand as prince and savior. He resurrected him. So that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive them of that murder. And all their sin. If they had just been willing to hear the truth, they would have heard the gospel message. Verse 32 again says, we are witnesses of those things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. For those of us in this room who call ourselves Christ followers, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this for the moment. That Holy Spirit that indwells us, that is currently and actively living in us right now, was present during the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he himself bears witness to the truth and the proof of that instance. And he is in you right now. You are filled with one who was there, who saw it with his own eyes. In fact, you were indwelt with the very life of Christ himself, who was there on that tree. 
and he is testifying within us. I was uh, teaching last week, push pause for a second, I was teaching last week or two weeks ago on millennials and I came across a stat from Barna that said six out of ten millennials in the United States have never even opened the Bible. They've never even opened it. What a mission field. So if the only Bible that they're ever going to read is your life, that can be very daunting. But when you think about that, you have the Holy Spirit, a witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ living in you. You take that into whatever circumstance you walk in. You take that anywhere you go. And you might be the very Bible that that person is reading. And it's enough. So when he calls you to step back into whatever temple courts you have, to be brave, to speak up, to say something. You have all the authority of heaven and earth. When I was turning in today up on South Congress, I passed by a gentleman's club. And there was a scrolling sign that said, we are open all day and all night. All day and all night. Just right up here on the corner, there's women taking off their clothes for money. And if you know the stats for those uh, ladies that participate in that, you know that a good number of them aren't there out of their own volition. We have a mission field right here. And maybe as I'm saying those words to you, maybe that's something that you've been thinking about, looking into, loving on these women that are desperate to do that. And maybe he's calling you out to do something. And he's given you a mission field walking distance from this church. Not to mention the three to four homeless people I saw walking down the street on South Congress. And what's holding you back, if that's what God is asking you to do. I don't want you to go do something he's not asking you to do. But if he is asking you to go into that temple court, like he asked the angel, like the angel of the Lord asked the apostles to go back into, if God is asking you to go into those places what's holding you back when you have the Holy Spirit himself living in you providing everything you need let's keep reading FYI I'm preaching to myself verse 33 when they heard this they were furious and wanted to put them to death but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, this is a biblical crush of mine, actually. I know it's, it's probably wrong, but it's the way it is. So he is a guy named Gamaliel. He was a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. He's about to call a big chill on the whole furor that's going on right now. Now, Gamaliel was actually the teacher of a guy we know as Paul, back when he was Saul. He was one of the most well-respected rabbis of the time. As a matter of fact, he wasn't called Rabbi Gamaliel. He was called Rabban Gamaliel. And Rabbi means my rabbi, and Rabban means our rabbi. He was the rabbi. He was the Billy Graham of the Pharisees. 
I just said that. But he was. And he said, then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. So yes, he's a Pharisee, but he's also talking to the Sadducees, and he's thinking politically, and he's going at him from that level too. He's very bright, very smart. He said, verse 36, he said, some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. He's like, look at Theodos. It didn't work out well for him. So if, this, if these guys are like him, don't worry about it. 37, Gamaliel said, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave the men alone. Chill out. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop it. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. He was more fearful of the Lord than of man. He said, that what they're doing is of God. We'll be able to stop it. We don't want to be on that side of the fight. I really hope he's in heaven. It's like everything he says, he's like right there on the verge. I'm just hoping that somewhere he got it. Verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, remember, the, what they were planning on doing was killing them. And instead, they were flogged or beaten. This word flogged in the original actually means stripped. And it's the same word that you might find for scorched. Much like Jesus was beaten before he went to the cross. It would have been a, some rope and some bone or some metal, and that's actually what they flogged them with. This was a horrendous beating. It was meant to dissuade them. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And what do you suppose they did? <laughs> the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only were they in the temple courts, they took it to the houses. They didn't just wait for the people to come to them. They went to the people. And they considered it an honor to be disgraced for the name. In the beginning of our story, they end up in prison and an angel lets them out. This miraculous uh, ending to this part of the story. Similar to when I was expecting somebody to break into my house and harm my family, this incredible thing happened. I really believe that my favorite emotion is the emotion of relief. Think about it. You lose your keys, you're going to be late for work, and you're like, I'm just going to look at the couch one more time, and boom, there they are. I love that feeling, you know? Or like when I might be just going a little over the speed limit, I'm not telling you to do this, but going a little over the speed limit and I see the hypo there on the left-hand side of the street and, I'm, and no lights come on, you know, you're looking in your rearview mirror like, oh, please, right? That feeling of relief, right? I love that feeling. They must have really felt that, 
in this time, like, oh my gosh, that, did you see that shiny guy letting us out of here? It's amazing. That's not at all how we expected this to end. I love that. So you have this at the beginning of our story. But the second time they are brought before the Sanhedrin, they're flogged. Literally skin stripped off their bodies. And they considered themselves worthy to suffer that disgrace. I love the songs that we were singing today. I love how God does that and Matt. <laughs> God does that through Matt. Choosing those songs because it talked about every moment is God's. Whether you're on the top of the mountain or down in the valley. It's all the Lord's moments. I heard recently of a story similar to mine that didn't end as well. My son is a freshman at Texas A&M. Sorry, T-Sips, but he's out there. And uh, uh, he is being discipled by a senior that's an amazing, godly young man who's a Pine Cove camp counselor and he leads a men's Bible study. He's just an amazing young guy. And about a month ago, um, his father was asleep and was awakened at 2.30 in the morning by an intruder in his home. Wife sleeping next to him, two young girls sleeping upstairs. And uh, he told the intruder to get out of his house. And the guy pulled a gun and shot him to death. And Tanner, his, the young man returned to school. Tanner went up to him and he said, how are you doing? How are you in here? young man looked my son in the eyes and he said you need to know God is still good he's still good and he's going to use this situation for his glory mountain and valley God is still good that young man was suffering disgrace he's using it for the sake of the We are going to enter into a time of communion here in a minute. I think the band's going to come up and play a song. But before we do that, I want to ask you, if you have had a moment like our apostles at the beginning of this, and you've experienced the relief and the release of the Lord from an awful situation where he has delivered you, and you are alive, and you are happy, and you are whole, and you have been restored. If that is your story, if you have a moment like that, would you raise your hand? If you've had a moment where you felt the Lord end a bad situation in a way much better than you could have ever anticipated. Lots of hands. And for those of you who have had a story or maybe are currently in a story, or you've experienced the horrors of an untimely death, or a diagnosis that has a long struggle attached to it, or the, a, a child that's not walking with the Lord, and you don't have the end in sight that you would hope for. If that is you, you don't have to tell us what it is, but if that is you, will you raise your hand? Mountains and valleys in this room. And I want to remind you all that we worship a Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who made it so that the mountaintops that we have, we experience, and the valleys that we experience, the miraculous and the severe. He has made a way for us and made a promise for us that there is something better coming. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, our light and momentary troubles are earning for us an eternal weight. That doesn't mean light as in value. It just means in comparison to his goodness and his glory and his miraculous power, what we are going through in this life is small in comparison to what awaits ahead of us. And if you don't know him yet, and you need the promise of that, I would encourage you to put your faith in him today. Not fearful of what man might think of you, but because you trust him and you want eternal life with him. And as you go and get communion, it's at the back. We're gonna ask you to just go at your own will some crackers and some grapes which represent the body and the blood of Christ given for you. I want you to thank him for his eternal presence in your life. There was a reason why the apostles were so willing to go back in, back in, back in because they believed in the one who came, the one who the Holy Spirit testifies about within their very soul. Trusting him mountain valley. Thank him. He made a way for us to do that through his body and his blood. So go participate, go partake, come back, and then we'll close. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are good. Every moment is yours. Nothing is wasted with you. Nothing's wasted. The good moments, the bad moments, the, the relief moments, and the fearful moments, nothing's wasted. You can use it all. You can use it all. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son. For his death on the cross on our behalf. And you, that you raised him to life so that we could have eternal life. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you for that. And the Holy Spirit, who was witness to that in that moment, we thank you for him, Father, that you have placed him in our hearts. we trust you and we love you because you are a faithful loving God, a good father